A graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, a former Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford, and the recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Maggie Shipstead is a working artist. I don't like the idea of, of writing what you know, and I think you know the things you know because you've learned them, and so there's always the possibility to learn more and know more. So for me, sort of the adventure of writing is, is to be able to, to discover new things and tackle new subjects. Which translates well into her own wanderlust. I started writing a bit for travel magazines in sort of uh, mid-2015. I started pitching places that would help me in the book, places that I wanted to see. So I felt like I could represent Marion's journey more accurately. From Missoula to the Arctic, what is it like to live this writer's life? Join us in conversation to find out. Please welcome Maggie Shipstead to the Northwest Passages virtual stage. Oh, I can't hear you. Talking to us from California? Yes, yeah, I'm nice. in Los Angeles. Well, thank you for joining us tonight uh, to talk about the Great Circle. Make sure I get it in the right place, or Great Circle. Ta-da! Yeah. If you're watching us on our live stream right now, you can click directly to aunties above us uh, to buy a copy of what just landed today on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Congratulations. I saw that it was also Apple's, you know, book pick of the month. Uh, you know, uh, Read with Jenna has picked this out. Uh, I just like to say we picked it up way, way early. We we're super <laughs> we're <fortunate>. pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we like to be trendsetters here in Spokane. Uh, also, if you're watching on our live stream, there's a forum to the side where you can submit questions, uh, which we will get to. We have a couple in the queue. But the overview of Great Circle, reading directly from the back, for those of you that have not read it yet, uh, it is the story of two vastly different women, a daredevil aviator and a disgraced Hollywood starlet whose fates collide. It is uh, an... You know, there are so many circles, you don't even know what to start, how to start with all the different circles. Um, but start with how uh, how long it took you to write this one. I understood it well, was like seven years. Yeah, well, Astonish Me was published almost exactly seven years ago. So, of course, the whole span of, of that time included both writing this and the publication process. But I started really writing in fall of 2016, um, which was right when I moved to, to L.A., and it took me, I'd also, I'd written both my first two books, um, at least the first drafts in less than a year, um, seating arrangements in about eight months mm -hmm. and astonished me in five months. And so I thought, yeah, I'm just someone who turns out books, you know, one a year. And uh, it took me three years and three months to write the first draft of Great Circle, which was 980 pages long. So this, Huge. you know, slender volume that we now have has actually been reduced quite a bit. But that's um, still, yeah, there's still a lot of, it, it, there's not much that's missing. I mean, it is really involved. The details, the research that had to go into this, I mean, historical fiction, the, I get it. But you make so many references to real people. Our reviewer, uh, Ron Sylvester, and I actually, when he wrote this, he said, I felt like Googling Marion Graves because things were so precise. And I swear to God, I was screaming. I'm like, yeah, I did too. I was like, wait, did I miss something? I really thought she was made up. 
Yeah, a lot of people have Googled her, uh, just to make sure, you know? <laughs> you need to build her a Wikipedia page. Let's get on that. That's right. That would be really confuse people. <laughs> oh. um, but yeah, so it was, it was three years and three months to write the first draft, and then a year to revise, and then I sold it to my publisher two years and eight months ago. My editor and I did three or four drafts. And then, you know, there's all the copy edits and page proofs. So it, it's really been a journey, both metaphorical and literal. Yeah, yeah. Do you have like, was it a big post-it board of things with, with you know, like I imagine uh, with, uh, you know, the, when you're looking at uh, CSI shows and all that stuff, there's the strings to all of this stuff because things tie so well together. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. Uh, they didn't always. Um, yeah, I never did sort of an external organization and I don't plan books. So I really just had to start and see how it went. But I used writing software called Scrivener, mm. um, which I've basically been doing a roadshow for on all my book events because There's an app I for could that. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, I could not have written this book without it. It, it helped me like, uh, it's a little difficult to explain, but you know, Microsoft Word document, I'd either have to have one huge document for the whole book or like 80 for each, you know, to have one for each chapter. And this lets you keep everything in one place and or move it around. You can kind of see what you have. It was still a gigantic, mm -hmm. you know, organizational challenge, but but that's how I did it. And I, it, I can't imagine life without Scrivener. It costs $50, everyone should have it. <laughs> Maybe you should get it. There should be a code, a great circle code. Oh, there should be. <laughs> get this in. Well, it's one, you know, there, there's an app for that. Well, the writing for uh, powerful or, you know, interesting, compelling, powerful women, the references for the women pilots in here uh, are are real. I mean, you, you of course, will reference Amelia Earhart. Um, the book starts, though, with a line from, I should have it memorized by this point, flip, flip, flip. Say it with me. I was born to be a wanderer. <laughs> The uh, I understand that you were influenced uh, by uh, was it uh, Janet uh, or no Jean, Jean Batten. Batten Jean Batten yeah yeah um, yeah there's a statue of Jean Batten at the airport in Auckland that I saw in the fall of 2012 I'd been traveling New Zealand and I thought I was going to write a different book kind of died on me so I was at the airport sort of thinking you know, what am I going to do next? And I saw this statue and she was the first person to fly solo from mm -hmm. England to New Zealand in 1936. And so it's a really cool statue and then a, a plaque engraved with a quote from her, which was, I was destined to be a wanderer. And so that kind of got morphed into being the, the book. And I didn't start writing really for two years after that, but I just sort of had that in the back of my head that this was what I was going to do next. Well, you are a writer. That's what you do. This is not a side hustle. You've also written for different magazines uh, and traveled uh, around. I read the article that you wrote for Outdoor Magazine. Uh, it seemed like, uh, you know, you built the trip uh, and wrote the book. Uh, so the trip came before the book was, you know, Cool. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I started writing for travel magazines in 2015, sort of um, when I was less than a year into the drafting process. And, and I knew I wanted to go to some of the places Marion goes. I wanted to go to the Antarctic and to the Arctic. And I was sort of um, looking for ways to do that and sort of fell <laughs> into travel writing. Somebody else writing. pay for it. That was good. Yeah, that was ideally. Good. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
Yeah, sort of founded travel writing um, and started pitching stories, particularly to those places. And, and so then once they started to happen, my life kind of started to change in unpredictable ways. Like I was in a relationship with someone who runs trips to Antarctica and, um, you know, you meet people who then facilitate other things in different ways. And, and so, yeah, I've been to the Arctic five times and to Antarctica twice. And I think it was also a function of editors being like, well, Maggie loves empty wastelands and we have an empty wasteland. We need someone to go to like, let's ask Maggie, um, which is great, you know, for me. And it's been a real education. And um, then other places I would kind of happen to visit. And if they fit into the book, you know, in they went. I was definitely um, taking Missoula. advantage of. You know, yeah. Missoula's representing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I spent two months in Missoula, actually, right before I started writing the book, um, kind of by chance, I wasn't living anywhere at the time. And I was considering moving there. And um, I was planning to set the book in Nebraska at that point. And it was only after I left Missoula that I thought, you know, maybe this is more sort of topographically interesting yeah, and has sort of interesting flat. There's not it's like Pretty flat. Very flat, 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 flat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, I don't want to ignore uh, you know the characters in the book. I, I would imagine most people are getting to read this now. Um, we have a, a question actually that I can pose to you uh, from Ron. He's wondering how much were you or are you influenced by Wallace Stegner's work, especially when it comes to creating such strong and complicated women. Oh, that's nice. I mean, I'm a I'm a great admirer of his and. Um, I was beneficiary of a, a fellowship that was established at Stanford in his name and takes five fiction writers and five poets um, every year for two years. And you spend two years in workshop and it's an amazing sort of resource for developing writers. Um, I would say it's been a long time since I've read his novels. I think I was a teenager and I, I should probably do a reread, but yeah, not directly, but you know, it all kind of goes into the primordial soup <laughs> that makes you a writer. And, um, I do identify as a Western writer as well. So he's, of course, well, a hero. Now that you're in, uh, you're located in L.A. and after your travels, uh, is that what uh, was the impetus for Hadley's character? Uh, she just, you know, the starlet kind of so weird to have these two weird, weird in a wonderful, awesome way. Uh, completely different women, uh, both driven by ambition, um, both of them raised by uncles and how that affected them. I will get into that, I guess, a little bit later. Um, well, I hope to. Uh, but having um, the L.A. influence uh, play out in as as this other life was happening with the Montana, uh, the kids growing up, uh, reading about starlets and, you know, how she screws up her life. Uh, almost like Marion does with uh, a relationship. Yeah, Hadley, uh, Marion was definitely my starting point for the book. And I, like I said, I just moved to LA. And so maybe a month into to working on the first draft, I, I wrote a section that became one of Hadley's sections, um, kind of out of the blue in this mm -hmm. sort of intense first person voice. And it had nothing on the surface to do with Marion at all. But I just felt like this was the missing component for this project. And often I need things to sort of intersect. And and it was it was a really different voice that I thought would sort of cut through the um, the bulk of the book, which is a more earnest uh, third person voice. And then it also became this lens to sort of show how difficult it is to reconstruct a life, particularly decades later. Um, and yeah, I think it's fun to write about Hollywood. I, you know, I, 
most of my friends in LA work in the business in one way or another. It's very omnipresent. Um, and so just taking even sort of familiar Hollywood tropes and, and just digging into them and redeploying them and um, using them as a platform for more interesting language was, was really fun for me and was a nice um, break. But it was difficult to figure out how to structure um, Hadley in with Marion and, and sort of what the rhythm between the two should be. How many, uh, I would imagine uh, there was just so much uh, primary material that you were looking at when you were putting together uh, Marion's life, uh, even from, uh, you know, the whorehouses in Missoula, <laughs> and, uh, bootlegging, uh, that, that had to have been uh, fun. What kind of primary resources were you looking at there? Um, I used to, I have accumulated this whole like library of stuff that I got. Um, I sort of research as I go. So not just I, YouTube, not just the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I used a lot of YouTube for astonish me, I will say. Yeah. And occasionally it did sort of answer my need. Like there's still sort of, you know, World War II era, like instructional flying films mm -hmm. on YouTube and, and things like that. But um, I use the, there's, I think it's called the Montana Historical Project. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of old photos as possible. It's a really nice searchable database. Um, I read accounts from the time. I read, um, uh, yeah, lot, and then in the flying part, lots of books by and about pilots, mm -hmm. um, read about Antarctica. Um, one funny uh, thing that happened was I, I was in Missoula after I'd been working on the book for about a year and was at the aviation museum at the airport. And these two guys came and they were pushing a historic aircraft out kind of the big doors. And they just said like, oh, tell that lady if she wants to come along, she can. And I was <laughs> like, lady. Lady I'm the lady? <laughs> yeah, I'm the lady. So I went out and they were taking up a 1927 Traveler 6000 and just asked just, if I wanted to come along. Yeah. Just Put her because, in there. Yeah. And so Liability like, release. Nothing. Just kidding. Nothing. Just cross your <laughs> fingers. And uh, yes, yeah, so it was the exact. I, so then I decided that would be the type of airplane Marion learned to fly because mm -hmm. I'd been in the exact plane in the exact place. And it was just this really serendipitous kind of, you know, perfect so you, thing. So you're not a pilot or yourself in any way, shape or form. You're just a passenger mm -hmm. that likes to fly places. Uh, yeah. The... Uh, one of Marion's first trips, her first trip was to Scotland um, when um, after she yeah, married when... Barkley. Mm -hmm. um, where do you remember where your first trip was? Uh, my first international trip. Yeah. Uh, I think, well, because I'm from Southern California. At some point when I was really little, we just took the train down and went over the border to Tijuana. Um, and then okay, so your first plane ride then. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we'd, you know, we'd go back and forth to grandparents in Michigan, but I don't really remember that. Um, my first sort of big international trip that felt like a trip was when I was 13. Um, my mom took me to Europe for three weeks and I got to choose where we went. And it was partly my brother is, is or was a pilot. He went to the Air Force Academy and he just left and we were so sad and she wanted to distract herself, but she really let me choose what we did. And mm -hmm. even like I'd read about a random monastery in the Alps and like a National Geographic from the 60s. And I was like, can we go try and see this? They had St. Bernard dogs there at the St. Bernard Pass. And she was like, sure. And so it ended up being, you know, three trains and two buses and, and we did it. And so that was kind of a formative experience of being like, oh, if you want to go somewhere and the opportunity presents itself, you can just go. <laughs> These places are all in existence. I, I, I also I had read that you didn't intend to become a writer. 
that that wasn't uh, something, this wasn't a calling for you, which again, I talk about astonishing. Uh, no, really? <laughs> yeah, not when I was, um, certainly not when I was a child or a teenager, even in college, I, um, I was an English major and I took some creative writing classes and I wrote a creative thesis. So I was definitely dabbling, but I was never kind of in love with the idea of being a writer. It seemed really hard. It's hard to imagine writing a novel until you do it. And mm -hmm. it is hard, you know? Yeah. Um, and so- And you're still, you're still doing it. <laughs> I know, yeah, strangely enough. So I graduated and I had one year um, in between college and when I went to Iowa and that year I was just sort of cast, like, I don't know what to do. I worked at a law firm. I sort of thought things over and applied to Iowa. And so it's really there when I was already in my MFA program mm -hmm. that I started to, to be more serious about it. Um, and I think it was helpful. You know, mm -hmm. I think not having this vision of myself at a typewriter um, took some of the pressure off. I yeah. could be just sort of who I was doing what I was doing and not trying to, to trying to achieve this romantic idea. Well, uh, your research skills are so on point you could have been a, a librarian with uh, all of the stuff that goes in although maybe it's not cataloged correctly because of your system with the with the stacks of things uh, i am very detail oriented so i really oh I yeah i got that librarians yeah. <laughs> we, we can yeah. get that there are the the details in here uh are they're just delightful is not even um a, a good enough word the uh everything that is described you really feel like you're there which is a which was a treat an absolute treat and a delight to read the um the experiences that uh marion and her twin uh brother jamie uh have as a child running around wild uh in missoula or you know it it um how they are then able to uh you know move forward from um, what was very odd circumstances. They were raised by their uncle. Um, Hadley was also raised kind of by her uncle. Can you speak to those two parallels? Yeah, um, that came in a bit later. In my, I think my initial draft, Hadley had not been raised by her uncle. And I felt sort of the absence of some sort of concrete tie between them. And I wanted Hadley to sort of look at at Marion and see and feel like maybe there's some information there. Like Marion to her is sort of like tarot cards or tea leaves and, mm -hmm. and Hadley's very lost. She's just sort of embarked on this public, she's been in a really high profile relationship which she sort of publicly blew up. Um, she's trying to decide what to do with her career, how to manage her fame, all these things. And and so when the chance to play Marion in a biopic comes up, she sort of starts looking at her like, you know, what's in it for me. And and so this connection with the uncles was something I wanted. Um, they're both sort of functionally orphans. Hadley's mm -hmm. parents died in a small plane crash. Um, but really, I think, too, what, what ties them together is just that they're both um, people who are trying to figure out sort of how to spend their one life, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think Hadley envies Marion's knowledge that she must be a pilot and um, maybe thinks that Marion had it all figured out because of that, which Marion didn't quite. She had to work very hard to sort of maintain her unorthodox life. Mm. Um, but yeah, Hadley is really seeking inspiration in Marion and, and the commonalities between them. I wanted to be, you know, ever so slightly spooky, but also to to drive the the connection between the characters. I um, I felt, uh, and it, I think even early on, it's a, a statement that uh, Hadley says, you know, Mary, 
Marion really only knows what happened. You, you know, when you're living your life, um, you never really know everything about somebody. And when you die, you know, you take those, those secrets with you, um, which was really interesting, an interesting theme throughout the book. Um, the, uh, the twins, mother, Annabelle, um, her, her secrets, what affected her, how she became her, herself. Uh, it, it, yeah, it was, it, it's stunning. It's just fun. And, and you, when you read it, you go, ah, oh gosh. Um, but while we're talking of secrets and uh, what the power of secrets, uh, and Marian said at one point, people treated her differently now that she knew their secrets. Hadley tries to find out secrets. And then I think she uh, accidentally you know, it, she's doing this because uh, she's been cast as a role in a role and people start bringing her in information. Um, so she finds out some of Marion's secrets, but I don't know what Hadley's secrets are. Maybe <laughs> I needed to read better. Does she have some? Um, she doesn't really, or her secrets are always on the verge of becoming public knowledge, which mm. is, yeah, you know, the life great, she's living. Yeah. Yeah. Like, great liability. And that was another version of this that sort of existed. I had a draft where Hadley was much more like rolling up her sleeves and going to the library and sifting through stuff about Marion and trying to sort of piece together this, this sort of question of who Marion was um, that got scaled back a little bit. And, and kind of also one of my touchstones in starting the book was, you know, you say you're writing a book about a woman who disappears flying around the world and people are like, ah, Amelia Earhart, you know? Yeah. And, and fair enough, but what interested me about Amelia Earhart the most, I think, is that I think it's very clear that she crashed into the ocean mm. and drowned. Like I don't, none of the other theories really hold water. And um, but we just have processed her death because it was a disappearance so differently. Mm -hmm. And so that idea that that lives disappear and, and erode and vanish or all these things was um, also one of my one of my big preoccupations sort of throughout the book. A grizzly in the water. I meant to look that up before I got on the phone with you. Or, that, you know, on... Sitting in the water, Grizzly is a real person. Yeah, that was, I was like, yeah. I'm going to Google that before I talk to her so I don't like look completely <laughs> inept, but that's fine. <laughs> Where did that, how did you stumble across that story? Yeah, so for, I mean, I, most people won't have read because it just came out, but. Um, but it is number Grizzly... 14 on the New York bestseller list, <laughs> so people will be reading it. I hope so, yeah. Um, sitting in the water grizzly was a native person, um, a person we would now call transgender probably mm -hmm. and might be called two-spirited um, and was a real historical figure. I, I came across him um, when I was doing some Montana research just in the the um, diaries of explorers at the time. And so David Thompson, who's going west, um, a, a Native American girl married one of his men um, and it didn't work, created chaos mm -hmm. for various reasons, and she disappeared. And when David Thompson next encountered her, she was living as a man, was a man, and had a wife and, and was sort of a, a prophet for pay in the region. And, and, and so Sitting in the Water Grizzly sort of flits in and out of these historic records, like John Franklin's mm -hmm. um, accounts of his journeys. Uh, a, a traveling Jesuit priest writes about him. Was, and what was so interesting to me is I think, you know, the Native people were so other to these explorers already that when um, they they met someone who had changed gender, they're just sort of like, huh, there's really no alarm. Um, it was very interesting. It was an interesting acceptance. And I also thought it was interesting that sitting in the water grizzly was a, a sort of master um, linguist and, mm -hmm. and spoke 
many uh, European languages and also a lot of different um, tribal languages. And so there's something about this person that was really in between and um, became sort of a um, guiding light for the book in, in a small sort of background way. Well, uh, actually, you challenge gender norms throughout uh, Great Circle uh, and you deal very effectively with, uh, you know, traditional relationships, gay relationships, tra trans relationships. Was that a purposeful choice? Not really. Um, I think because it reflects the it reflects the lives we have now. So that makes it very now. But then it's like, oh, OK, so this has been around for a while in this historical fiction. Yeah, well, that's exactly the thing. I mean, those relationships have all been around mm -hmm. for a while. And so I think someone like Marion, you know, I, I never she wouldn't have had any vocabulary for gender identity. And, and so she has this really feral childhood um, where it doesn't occur to her that being a girl or woman will be any sort of limitation mm -hmm. on her, her um, certainty that she must fly. And then as she gets older, she starts to bump up against these societal restrictions. And mm -hmm. so there are times in her life when she finds it sort of um, helpful or efficient to present herself as a boy or a man um yeah with the and, assistance and, and knowledge of you know jamie knows that she's doing it caleb uh caleb takes knows knows that she's doing it um for those that haven't read the book jamie is is marion's twin caleb is their uh longtime uh friend that uh you know sticks around forever yeah and i think too just being a being on the frontier um or what was called the frontier too it's sort of uh, you know, it, there was more, a little more room to be eccentric in this particular way too. And, and she also doesn't really think about defining her sexuality. It's more just, she encounters people. Um, somebody asked me when I was writing it, you know, is it a love story? And I said, no. And then when I thought about it, I sort of thought, yes, you know, it is the story of, of all her different loves and the different forms they take and um, mm -hmm. the role that love plays in her life. But it's, it's just not a, you know, a marriage plot. No. Well, no. And actually, neither one of uh, there's a question uh, from uh, Liz asking that um, marriage and relationships are challenges for both these women. Um, and uh, is that because of their ambition? I um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to that. I think for Marion in particular, when she knows that what's most important to her is freedom, um, she just has to constantly guard it. She's sort of hyper vigilant against mm -hmm. letting anyone in that would then start to restrict her, her, um, her freedom, especially after her sort of disastrous marriage. Um, and Hadley, I think Hadley's just sort of mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, I think it is difficult for her to create space and trust for for a solid relationship, just given all the pressures on her and, and the sort of public act of performing femininity and performing a partnership that that we sort of ask celebrities to do. Yeah, the, yeah that creates a completely different person for them. Um, the uh, oh, the both both uh, Marion and Hadley use uh use sex though to their advantage uh to get what they want yeah i mean hadley has sort of a me too moment which i believe i wrote before the harvey weinstein yeah. news broke but even when that news broke i've been talking about this a bit is you know, I don't think anyone was that surprised. Like even no. people who had nothing to do with Hollywood knew that Harvey Weinstein was a sexual predator. <laughs> and so it was both a journalistic bombshell, you know, that was sort of painstakingly built by, by journalists and then also not a surprise to anyone. 
Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to, to kind of bring that into the story and uh, do something different with it. I, was, I had a conversation, a, like online conversation with Curtis Sittenfeld, and we were talking about this issue of taking th things that are familiar mm. um, that the reader might already have an opinion about or knowledge of and then making something different with it. And sh her analogy is that it's like, if you're talking to someone and you're describing a person you know, but they don't, mm -hmm. that's a different kind of conversation than when you're talking about a mutual acquaintance. And so in some ways, events like this are sort of mutual acquaintances um, between me and the reader. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of a head start or something. I, and I think that tension is really um, intriguing to work with. Yeah. Uh, can you talk more about... Uh, well, there are multiple. There's so many great circles. There's so many circles throughout this book. Uh, juggling them all, uh, you know, thank goodness you had the app to help you out uh, or the, the writing <laughs> program. Uh, but there's, you know, and I may or may not have glazed over like math things, but I, I understand that that's the impetus for the title. Yeah. Um, so it's, this is at the very beginning of the book, but uh, for those who aren't familiar, a great circle is the circumference of a sphere at its largest point. So it, the equator is a great circle. And then every line of longitude um, is also a great circle. And so that's why, you know, on a commercial flight, you're taking a curved path. The shortest distance between two points on a sphere is a segment of a great circle. So I was, I like the idea that there are infinite great circles going through the poles, mm -hmm. like Marion's um, journey. And, and the sort of circularity was intriguing to me as well, because she, you know, she doesn't complete her flight. Um, but I always wonder what it would have meant to her if she had, you know, because all this work and danger to fly the circular path. And then your reward is to be back where you started, mm -hmm. you know, and the horizon stretches out again. Um, so I was interested in that, that endlessness. Um, the book's very concerned with scale, you know, like a, a human life is both really small and really big and the planet's both really small and really big. Um, and so how do you sort of grapple with, with the size of things and, and circles sort of present a similar kind of mind-bendy um, challenge. Yeah. When you were uh, when you were traveling uh, for this, uh, for, well, what to what became the book, um, you, uh, I, I read in that, I guess, I think it was in the Outside Magazine about being on uh, the horizon and just seeing nothing just being being in the middle of that nothing nothing oh space. yeah in in Greenland so so you know as I said I, I wanted to go to Antarctica and did but when you go uh you you go on a ship and you see the mm -hmm. coastline um you know it's possible to fly into the interior as a tourist it's prohibitively expensive um but it was because of Marion's story I, I I really wanted to know what it was like to be in the interior of Antarctica so what ended up happening was that for outside I was doing a story about the um, unit of the National Guard that does all our polar airlift so they go to Antarctica in our winter the Antarctic summer and then in our summer they train in Greenland and so I flew on a four engine uh, cargo plane, a C-130 from upstate New York to Greenland um, and was there with them for a few days. And, and we flew onto the ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet and landed on skis. And yeah, that I got the vision that I wanted, which in some ways is so simple, just this mm -hmm. disc of white and this dome of sky, nothing there. But the feeling of it was something I couldn't have quite imagined. And mm -hmm. it goes back to this idea of scale. There was just a hugeness to it and this mm -hmm. feeling of being sort of on the skin of, of the planet. 
Um, and also a strange feeling of standing on thousands of feet of ice, you know, and I kind of take these steps and it's just snow, but you're like, what's underneath me? I, I don't yeah. know. It's, so it was, it was really um, otherworldly. Yeah. Just to, to be able to, to, to travel and do that. I'm just looking forward to it again. I would imagine yeah. you too. Uh, yeah. Debbie has a question asking, um, where do you inspire to travel next? Um, do you have a list? So hard. Uh, well, I have a couple assignments, so that'll define it. Uh, my first assignment back was actually also for outside, and it was supposed to happen last summer. Obviously, got canceled. Um, and it's an all women's backpacking or backcountry skills trip in Alaska in the Alaskan interior. Um, Amazing! That sounds great. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Let's let's send her out. She likes the desert. Let's go do this. I, we got the writer. Yeah. I think I pitched this one. Yeah. And then um, in the fall, I have a cruise in French Polynesia that I was supposed to leave on like th three days after the lockdown started. And so it really seemed like I was going to go until the last minute. And my editor was like, you're not going on a cruise. I was like, oh, right. And probably not. Yeah. Vo but, the, uh, vo the voice of reason coming in. <laughs> like, no, no, no. Yeah. That is not that is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, well, so aside from it being, uh, you know, working for the magazine, uh, do you have uh, uh, other plans for more novels or more short stories? Or uh, how how do you how do you how do you even plan if you don't know what you're going to write? Actually, how I, you probably can't answer that question. Well, it can be difficult. Um, I have a short story collection coming out next summer, which mm -hmm. I sold with this book, and so stories I've already written. Um, and then I have started another novel. I had sort of some false starts during the pandemic. I, um, it was funny, you know, it was all this time. Where yeah, you were, go were you, was it productive for you? I mean, did you, you know, shutter in place in LA and? I did, I, yeah, I was, I was almost always here. Um, my parents live in San Diego, so I was down there. We sort of potted, I was down there a little bit and I did a couple road trips for travel magazines. But, um, you know, yeah, you sort of think, oh, I have this uninterrupted time yeah. and quiet. I won't be going off on these trips, but it didn't really, I, you know, I think one thing I didn't appreciate about normal life was just how much, you know, inspiration for lack of a better word, I draw from just basic hum human interaction mm -hmm. and talking to my friends and hearing about their lives and being out in the world and even just taking my computer to a cafe in my neighborhood and, and working there with kind of background activity. I really missed all of that. It was, it was really hard to sort of access my sort of fictional mind. And I was still finishing this book. Um, I had to read it, you know, for those last few page proofs and stuff a few times. And that that took up a lot of energy. But yeah, I've started something I think um, it's going to be a lot less research based. It's not going to be as long, you know, God no, willing. Um, no, this is good. Okay, so we have to go back to the other prior to your prior books and and you know, get get those because after this, okay, so it will take you more than one sitting. That 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 is true. Uh, but uh, yeah, otherwise you'll get a blood clot or something. So please <laughs> don't read it on one sitting. It's not uh, the. Um, I feel like I haven't talked enough about the men in this book. Um, the the ones that aren't scoundrels. Uh, we could talk about Jamie for a little bit and his uh, chosen profession, also influenced by his uncle. Uh, Jamie brought up um, by their uncle. Uh, their uncle was a painter. Um, and had a hell of a gambling problem, which is, yeah. gosh, that's how, that was how Miriam got married. That's not a spoil, not too much of a spoiler, uh, spoiler alert. It happens early on. 
But uh, how, how did you, uh, you know, immerse yourself into the art world? Uh, talk about research, or were you already very familiar with the process that you then had Jamie uh, imbibe as a painter? Um, no, like everything I sort of had to learn as I went. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, that is writing. That's like you said in the chat. You, you know, writing is an opportunity for adventurers to learn new things. Yeah, it was funny to see that video because, of course, all those clips are when my other books came out. And I was still in yeah. my 20s. Yeah. I guess I was 30 when Astonishment came out. And I was like, you know, looked a little different. And I, it was fun to see them. Um, yeah, so I, with Jamie, um, he follows in his uncle's footsteps. He's a really gifted artist. But um, at one point, I came across a documentary, an old PBS documentary about combat artists um, yeah. who during World War II, and I, I think before as well, and, and to this day, um, every branch of the military, uh, at least in World War II, recruited from either within their ranks or from without um, and tasked these men with um, the, the actual language was to capture the spirit or essence of war. And so sometimes they could choose where they went. Other times they're sort of sent. And, and so there's an amazing body of work, um, which you can find a lot of online, that these artists did sketches and, and full scale paintings of battles or just of sort of life during the war. Um, so when I came across it, I thought, oh, this is what Jamie yeah. should do. And, and so then that, you know, changes the trajectory of the book, because then um, like the paintings I liked the most that I saw were by an artist who was in the, the Aleutian Islands during the war. And so because I could already sort of picture the work, I decided to send Jamie there. Plus, Marion had spent time in Alaska. And so he's also getting to go to this place or version of it yes. that that matters to her. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, you know, I have to go out and buy books about World War II <laughs> and the Aleutian Islands. <laughs> it's just sort right of like, off. Yeah. <laughs> it's a text right off. Just, just yeah. file it away. <laughs> Lots of used books. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Well, speaking of books, um, Claire at Auntie's always wants to know what books you're reading now. Well, I always kind of have a smorgasbord going. Um, and, but what I've been reading most actively right now is a nonfiction book uh, with an Antarctica connection <laughs> that came out the same day okay, as mine. You've been, you've been twice. You, you're going to go a third time? I'm sure I will. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny because guides who work there go all the time and it's normal to go repeatedly. There's a very high carbon cost. That's yeah. my like sort of. But anyway, so <laughs> this book um, is called Madhouse at the End of the Earth by Julian nice. Sancton. Okay. Um, I'm doing an event with him next week. And it's about a 1898 um, expedition, a Belgian expedition. The ship's called the Belgica and they got frozen into the sea and so unintentionally wintered over in Antarctica and uh, their collective mental health deteriorated dramatically. And it's very interesting. It's very good. I believe you. Uh, that's good. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 but thank you very much for joining us on Northwest Passages. I am so thrilled to have a book to recommend because, I, 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 you know, sure, everybody else is recommending it. But this one, The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, please. It, it is so amazing and intricate and great and fun to read. You won't throw it across the room at certain plot points if you get angry um, because it's just still that compelling to read. Maggie, thank you very much for joining us on Northwest Passages tonight. And I look forward to you coming here live eventually when we can do these things in Spokane again. I'd love it. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to do the Wheel of Names uh, so we can find out who wins a copy of The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. So uh, anybody that registered got a free uh, ticket into our drawing uh, and the opportunity to win this fabulous book. Okay. Here it is. Here <laughs>
Ooh, the VRBO ad is up there. We can like get rid. Of, we'll get I don't it, know we'll if get yeah, it yeah, there it'll show up there. See who it. I know your mom was registered too, so maybe I mean I have, Cynthia Bly. Hello, yay! <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia, send me an email, bookclub at spokesman.com, so that I uh, know what your favorite part of today was. But you are a winner of this very, well, I'll get you a nicer copy uh, of Great Circle. Uh, coming up next week on Northwest Passages, uh, all of our events are listed at spokesman.com forward slash book club. Uh, we will be talking to Jennifer Longo, What I Carry. It's a book about a... Uh, uh, foster youth who is aging out of the system. Molly Allen will be joining us uh, to uh, moderate that event with Wishing Tree Books. And then coming up in June, we have Spokane's own Kate Lebo's book, The Book of Difficult Fruit. All of these books are available at our local independent bookstores, so please support local and join us next time on Northwest Passages. Thanks very much. <laughs>